Good morning, church. Welcome and uh, have a seat if you would. And while you're taking your seat, I um, want to give some of you permission that you will probably need. Kids are heading to children's land next door, and that's cool uh, because they probably slept through last night. And most of you did not. You were awoken with your dog or... For some other reason, uh, the brilliant light flashing. How many heard or heard thunder or saw lightning? Some form. <laughs> How many didn't? I'm curious. All right, so those of us that did not, and I am one of them, I'm, tempting to, I'm tempted to say something spiritual, uh, like <laughs> our hearts were settled in Jesus. We don't wake up for silly things like thunder and lightning. Uh, but I, I hear, uh, who was it? Dale Potter said out in Sherwood, which is the epicenter of most cool things, but um, <laughs> apparently the, the lightning storm there was one for the ages. I, don't, I can't even see Dale right now. He's an usher in the back. Oh, he's still putting out the fire in his uh, property from the lightning. Um, but anyway, um, I understand it was uh, not to be forgotten. Um, Quite a, quite a sight, quite a scene. Speaking of such things, um, how many of you happen to be or used to be Duck fans? I'm talking about the team in uh, 100 miles south of here. Yeah. Uh, they used to be part of the Pac-12, that team. Yeah. Um, I understand they pulled out a squeaker yesterday. Uh, like, uh, but what do you expect? They played Southridge High School, for crying out loud. Give us a break. I don't understand the first game of college football at all, never have. Why would a powerhouse like Oregon, admittedly, uh, take on a team that barely suits up a team, right? I mean, and that happens all, it's not just an Oregon problem. It's everybody likes to pick on, it's not, it's, it's like Goliath versus David, only they make sure Goliath's got all the ammo and David. I don't know. I don't know if the analogy breaks do, do down because someday that smaller team is going to whoop on the big boys and it will be a day of joy. Um, anyway, hey, um, it's good to be together. I know, uh, boy, school starts tomorrow or day, to, day after tomorrow and um, that will be a big deal. I want to lead us in prayer right now and for this reason. At this very hour, uh, Pastor Michael and Krista Westfall, who um, finished their work here this past summer, have begun their work today at Trinity, and it's his first time in the pulpit. So um, this isn't my first time, but I feel that with him. So I've been praying like crazy. So Lord, we join together as people that love the Westfalls. We thank you for Micah, for for Krista and Michael, for the blessed family they are. We pray for your power, we pray for your peace, and we pray that they would have a ridiculously fun time today as they are in a spot where you are anointing everything that takes place. For your glory and for their good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, that's cool. So... Um, I want to uh, begin with words that you've probably heard before, but he was a Hall of Fame baseball player, Yogi Berra. Remember 
memory. Okay, so he once said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, we've all been there, haven't we? Um, two com competing ideas. That's what a fork is. They take you in different directions normally, sometimes significantly. I remember being on a camping trip, and we came to a fork coming out of Zion National Park, and we were cutting west across Nevada. And we came to this literal fork that said, hook a right, and you go to Great Basin. Hook a left and you go to Reading. <laughs> I mean, really, it was, it was one of those easy decisions, but we had to go anyway because we were heading home and we went left. But if you went right, you would have been to this, I'm told, I've not been to Great Basin. That's an amazing, amazing place. And, uh, and those two options competed. Uh, they're both quite compelling. Going home, we went left and headed west. But we really wanted to call in sick and hang right and not get home on time and enjoy the Great Basin. You've been there. I've been there. Most people I know uh, would prefer in that example or many other examples the best path. We're not interested in next to best. We want the best path. Some of you today, I realize, are making big decisions. I'm not going to answer uh, completely or adequately for what you're hungering for this morning. Uh, some sort of writing in the sky or a bush that burns and never burns up. Uh, it may happen in your case, but oftentimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's an easy choice, though. And then sometimes it's a paralyzingly difficult choice, that fork in the road. You ever pulled over before you took one or the other and just stood there and went, I don't know, I don't have cell service, I cannot tell where this is going, I don't even have a map, remember those things from the olden days? Don't have it, you know. What do I do here? Um, and I'm, I'm not going to list a bunch of examples of what I'm saying about this so-called fork in the road because, frankly, there's just too many. They're endless. And, and because one person finds it an impossible quandary and sits at that sign for a long time, may never even pull the trigger, we might say. And I know you. And I am you. Big decisions, I guess because they've got big in front of the word decision, are hard. Maybe they're supposed to be. I think from what we talk about this morning as we resume our time in Acts, if you're not there yet, you can turn to Acts chapter 21, which is where we will pick up where we left off back in April. Can you believe it? And uh, just a little detour, right? But we did so because we had a summer series, which was uh, a lot of fun, and uh, we completed that um, recently. But we come to um, a resumption previously on Steps with the Spirit, you could say, if this was a TV show. Um, we'll get there in just a minute. But the reality is one person sees an impossible fork 
and another person comes along to that same location, and you're hearing my words right now, you might be the person that comes to it, pauses briefly, and then makes the decision and moves on. West or east? Acts chapter 20, still, or 21, you're looking for that. Uh, I, I want to just confess to you before we get too deep into this. Uh, there are two subjects that I personally um, rarely preach on. And you will not likely see a book written by me on either of these subjects. Uh, one of them comes up today. But let me, let me mention the other one, because some have asked over the years. Uh, how come you don't preach on when and how Jesus will return? Fair enough. Good question. Some churches, that's all they talk about, the when and the how. They get into the nuances. They report updates continuously and frequently amend what they said earlier. You getting a hint of why I don't? Um, do I believe Jesus is coming back? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I won't be the last guy out of this room when he comes. Okay? I'm actually heading up the rapture hatch right here. This is where we go. <laughs> where I'm heading, right? And if you belong to him, and most of you do, it's, uh, it's going to be easy for you to go and be with him. So I, but, but here's the deal. The when and the how, ugh, tough stuff. Read on an honest translation of Revelation. Just stick there. And you come out and speak with dogmatic conviction about every detail with regard to the how and when he will return. And I promise you, if you're honest, you will come to the place Jesus came to when he was asked. Who better to ask? Hey, say, uh, we, we get it. You're going to leave. When and how are you coming back? Good question. It, it was such a good question. It was talked about or recorded in three of the four Gospels. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. I've nearly memorized them because I wanted to know the when and the how. But I came back to these words that are in chapter 24, verse 36. Hey, guys, here's the deal. He was answering his disciples, so he probably called them guys. Here's the deal. Angels don't know. Even the Son of Man, speaking about himself, doesn't know when and how. What he knew and what he's guaranteed to provide for us on the subject of his return is that he will come back and that has extraordinary implications for every single one of us. If you need proof of that, we don't have time this morning, but please read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse, read the whole chapter, and you will get a sense. This is Peter who, I don't need to tell you, he was a guy that thoroughly disqualified himself, and then God restored him. Isn't that a great message all by itself? And he restored him and said, Peter, I want you to tell my people. They're going to live in a world that doesn't get it, doesn't believe it doesn't buy it. And that world's going to scoff. They're going to say, you guys, you, you Christians, you've been talking this jive forever. This is stupid. 
because the world has continued on just as it has since the beginning. And Peter says when they make that point, it escapes their notice that God actually created the world without a hammer. That's my, that's my editorial input. He simply spoke words. Let there be. Let there be. Say it with me. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Right? That's what God said. On, on five days, he covered the created world. On the sixth day, he covered humanity, men and women. And on the seventh day, he kicked back in a hammock and rested. All with words, let there be, and it was. Peter, back to Peter now. Peter says the same thing's going to happen. People say, there's no sign, there's no evidence. Well, there, there actually is, but it's not conclusive. I remember my parents saying the same thing. He's got to come back any day now. Can't get worse. Folks, we lived in Berkeley, Oakland, Haight-Ashbury, ringing bells in the 60s. <laughs> okay. Not a good place. Scary, scary, scary. He's got to be coming any minute. We're a lot of years after that. But Peter says, the same God that spoke it into being will bring fire and utter global destruction, including the heavens, the planets, everything, smoke. It all starts new. Second Peter 3, you got to read it. So you're seeing why I don't like to spend a ton of time except for the implications. Since all that's going to happen, how then shall we live? Second Peter 3 covers that. Okay? There's a second subject that I don't preach very often about and I don't plan to write a book about. And that is how on the question, how does God guide? How then does God guide? Lots of examples in the Bible. You know, your Old Testament, you see some really cool ones. But all of them, not one of them, is repeated today. You say, really? Um, my favorite, cloud and fire, that led to people for 40 years. Remember? Cloud, and then at nighttime, fire. That's easy. All you got to do is open your eyes and follow it. Stop. It's not moving anymore. Follow it some more. You know what I mean? That's how it works. Where does God want us to go? And how fast does he want us to get there? It was all covered in a cloud and fire. That was really great stuff. By the way, all the notes are at the bottom of your page as they are each week. You can read these stories as well. That one from Exodus. And then there comes in Judges chapter 6, the fifth of 12 judges. His name's Gideon. And... Um, he, had, he was asked by God to do something big, scary big. And God said, um, I want you to do that now. And he reacted the way most of us do to situations like that. Really, God? Shaking like dogs last night in the thunder and lightning storm? What do I, what, I, do, I need some indication. I need some confirmation. And so he comes up with a fleece. This, a sheep's fleece, fleece. And he lays it in this threshing room where they 
stomped on wheat and that sort of thing and the, or, or grapes and they put it in, he put it in the middle and he says I want it to be wet and all the ground around it dry. It's not likely on its own. Well, sure enough, it turned out that way. And then he repeats himself. And he says, I want to reverse it, God, Gideon. And he says, how about you make the fleece wet, or the, 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 the floor, the ground wet, and the fleece dry. And it happened just that way. He got his answer. That was no longer a quandary decision. Go to battle, God will be with you. Then you get other guys that, that, that stories that came along, like casting lots. That was, that's hard to even know what that was. Some have said drawing straws. I, I don't think so. I think it was some kind of coin. Um, I know somebody that believes that I really respect that it was like rolling dice. Here, roll the dice. Maybe. That doesn't, hasn't happened in my experience. There's another one called Urim and Thunim. The high priest had this ephod. It's like a vest, like a fishing vest with lots of uh, pockets. And there was, there was stones in there. And if these, somehow the stones, no one really knows. All my research said, gots me. Um, but somehow that gave indication and clarity. All of this for me to confess to you, I, I actually am that guy that, that envies people in the Old Testament, in the Bible. I look at that, and I, and I don't think, yeah, well, I think, wow, what a cool time to live where you, you, want, you want God's guidance, and you hear directly from God, and it gave you very clear direction on which direction to go. That's enough direction in one sentence, right? Um, I could go on and on, but please look at stories like the first city that Israel was to conquer when they came into the land. And there was a method given to Joshua. They had been in the wilderness for 40 years, and the method was weird. I mean, how do you take a city? Overwhelming force, right? There's no other way to do it, or a country. Well, the instructions given to Joshua when they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land as they looked at Jericho, a formidable city, we want you to march around it, follow the priests, one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, do what I just said seven times. And then the horns will blow, people will shout, and you've got your city. The walls will actually cave in. And it happened just that way. Um, so um, the New Testament changed a lot and it really changed this subject and it happened when Jeremiah at least the news was revealed the curtain was peeled back and he announced something that was going to take seven centuries to happen he was a great prophet his last day on the job was when Jerusalem burned to the ground okay 
He warned the people. He begged them. He pleaded with them. He said, pay attention, people. And they didn't. And eventually the, the promised doom came. And when that happened, uh, his, day, uh, his, his, his career was over. But Jeremiah, before he walked away from uh, the burning temple in Jerusalem, said that there was coming a day, seven, turns out seven centuries later, where God's going to completely change his approach to guiding people to a very new and very intimate method. He's not going to give you signs, forks in the road that you have to roll dice or cast lots. He's going to put his spirit inside of you. And when he does, his Holy Spirit's going to guide your steps. He's going to actually live inside you as he does any Christian here hearing my words today. On the day you met Jesus, he came to live inside you. And on that day, his Holy Spirit begins um, to direct your steps. And that's um, what comes next in Acts 21. Swindoll described the change in how God guides this way. Our master introduced a different approach. Instead of standing before us to give orders, he now lives within us to transform our minds so that we begin to think his thoughts. Does that happen for you? He says more. As the Spirit gradually takes over, defeating our old, selfish, vain, foolish manner of life, that pretty much describes it, we begin to cherish what God cherishes and make decisions according to God's values and view life from his eternal perspective. Isn't that cool? It's not pushed, it's not forced, it's not hurried, but it's sure. It's sure. So we pick up where we left off last April um, in our series called, your Bible say Acts of the Holy uh, Acts of the Apostles. And we've respectfully kind of amended the word apostles and said acts of the Holy Spirit because frequently in nearly every chapter you see the Holy Spirit really doing amazing things. So there's no, no sleight of hand there. I just want you to know that. And Paul had bid the Ephesian elders a fond farewell as he boarded an eastbound vessel for the voyage to Jerusalem, his intended destination. And on his trip, he would face attention. That's the way I want to put it. Between the prompting of the Holy Spirit in him, which by the way came at Pentecost, chapter 2 of Acts, the tension between the Holy Spirit saying, do this, no, go right, go right. And this is why it's attention, the counsel of godly people. whose advice comes from concern for his well-being. So let's, let's take in this real-life tension related to how my title says today, How the Holy Spirit Guides. After we had torn our, ourselves away, isn't that an interesting way to put it? Chapter 
21, verse 1. We tore ourselves away from this beautiful, rich, final farewell with these elders. We put out to sea and sailed straight, think, south and east. The next, to cause. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is north of present-day Israel. Tyre, Sidon, places like that. We call it Lebanon today. Okay? That's what he means by Phoenicia. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, and we went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus, that was the island, first place they stopped, by the way, on their first missionary trip. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, so they were on the right side of Cyprus, we sailed on to Syria, and that's the same land, Syria um, in the north of Israel. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them a week. Watch closely and listen carefully. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out, out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre, now he's heading south to Polemius, and where we were greeted there by brothers and sisters staying with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, a familiar place. Lots of things have happened in this journey through the acts of the Holy Spirit in Caesarea. It's a coastal city. Uh, Forty of us from our church stood on the shore there. It was quite moving and impactful to sort of visualize all this stuff. Leaving the next day, they reached nonetheless Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. You recall Philip, that name. Clear back in Acts chapter 6, Philip um, was one of the, the early leaders. And um, after the persecution of S Stephen in chapter 7, People scattered, and Philip was one of those who scattered and went north to Samaria. He was an evangelist. He was one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Just a quick note on Agabus. He's the one that correctly prophesied a famine that would come, and indeed, it happened spot on earlier in our study. Coming over to us, he took, it's a very dramatic picture here, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, my Bible has quotations here, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. End quote. When we heard this and the people there pleaded, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, okay, on second thought, no, what's your Bible say? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Feeling the tension here? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. End quote. When he could not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. All right. The mind of man plans his ways. So goes the wisdom from Proverbs 16:9. But the Lord directs their steps. Paul had purposed to go to Jerusalem. That was on his heart to do so. And you don't have to change the page at all. Look across the page to chapter 20, verse 22, and you'll see in his own words, I'm compelled by the Spirit. You see that? Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So that's his source of strength. He has this personal Call it a conviction, a clear conviction at that, that I'm going to go and I'm going to face hard stuff. There's a road ahead that will be difficult, but I'm willing to go there. With that kind of clarity and conviction, it's no wonder, verse 14 of chapter 21 that we read already, reads, we could not dissuade him, so we quit trying. And basically said, the Lord's will be done in your life, Paul. Um, En route, Paul faced from leaving the Ephesians elders all the way to Jerusalem. He faced incredible um, developments, I'm going to call them. Disturbing developments. Developments that do not make decisions easy. The first we read already in verse 4, it bears repeating. They land the ship and it's important and stands out to me. They were sought out by the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. But then you read the words, the disciples urged Paul through the Spirit. Wow. Who are the disciples? You don't have to name them by name. You just have to say they're cool. They're standout people. These aren't random pulling into a gas station saying, hey, bro, is it right or left up here? Okay, no offense to gas guys. I was a gas guy for years. But you're talking disciples. People with cred, street cred. People with trustworthy character. When you come to a pastor, the same thing happens to you. You, you assume that pastor is not just going to give you a bunch of uh, sunshine. 
You assume the pastor's going to say some honest and informed things to you. He might even quote Ephesians 4 that says, I'm here to speak the truth in love in your life. That's what I want to do. And it might not be tickling your ears, but you'll leave there sensing if, if you'll let the Holy Spirit talk to you. He tried, and, and, I, and there's, there's, there's something to consider in what was said. That's all my framing of what we just read in verse 4. Because these are disciples, and they stayed for a week with them. And the, through the Spirit, the disciples were the ones to urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Uh, and verse 5, I read it with a chuckle because it strikes me that way. This is after seven days, having coffee with the guys for seven days, having conversation, going to bed, waking up the next day, seven days. And verse 5 simply says, when it was time to leave, we left. <laughs> you, you have a little awkward chuckle too. I think intended there. We left and continued on our way, undaunted. How do you do that? Verses 10 to 12 is the other source of his tension. While staying in Caesarea, this Agabus, told you about the famine he predicted back in chapter 11. And, and he, he comes up to Paul, and you can't miss his point. Takes a sash. It's not a belt or I'd pull my belt off. Um, but it's a big thing. It it's wraps around their robe, sometimes several times. There's lots of material here in this belt-like sash. And he wraps his arms and he wraps his feet. And then he says, so there's no confusion what he's doing here. This is going to happen to the owner of this when he goes to Jerusalem. Think incarcerated. And worse. Um, being turned over to the Gentiles is an easy sentence to read in verse 11. But in this, in this setting, nothing could be more fearful. Not even the Romans. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, they didn't fear the Romans quite like they would fear the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles had a holy resistance. Holy in quotes, by the way. Misinformed, but passionate nonetheless, because by golly, we have a way of doing things. And, and Paul and the Jews are doing them differently. Um, these two warnings... Um, about what lay ahead match what Paul had been prepared to encounter in the Holy Spirit. We just read it in chapter 20, verse 23. I'm willing to suffer. I don't care what it costs me. I think that's kind of why later Paul would write Timothy. Happens to be his last letter. And he included in that letter, chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Let me stop the quote. 
can have you raise your hand if that's you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. That's me with two hands up. I want to be that guy. Doesn't always turn out that way. I falter. I was mad at somebody yesterday, but I got better. You get my point, right? I want to live godly in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 concludes, will be, not may be, will be persecuted. It's like Paul got it and made sure Timothy, who was going to be handed the baton after him, that he got it as well. Um, you sense the tension he felt. He had heard from the Holy Spirit that hardship, chapter 20, and all the stuff of prison was going to be facing him when he arrives in Jerusalem. And um, he hears the same from Tyre and, and the strong encouragement. Don't go there. Don't go there. Um, he was steadfast, though, and it kind of comes to the touch point, the takeaway point for us. When you're that person, and it's a, it's a tension, what do I do here? Which direction do I take at this fork? What do I do? Paul states, verse 13, steadfastly that he would not be deterred. He possessed a resolute conviction. You don't see him saying, I'm going to sleep on it another night and need a little more time. Uh, there's no fleece. There's no Urim and Thummim. There's no casting lots. There's no burning bush. There's no cloud. Hey, if that is something I long for, he was a whole lot closer in years to those events. I imagine he might have thought like Gideon, hey, just a little fleece, Lord. It's all I need. And he didn't get it. Um, so when we give someone counsel that we believe to be from God, what do we do if they don't embrace it? I think I'd miss a, an important moment here. We would. If I didn't mention how verse 14 ends, the people were pushing hard. Don't go there. They're weeping. Paul says, why are you making me sad? Quit it. You're not making it easy for me. And notice what they came to at the end of verse 14. The Lord's will be done. Of note, they stopped short of judging him. Dude, you're missing it. You are going off the path. Romans 14.4 warns all of us at that moment. Forgot what Romans 14.4. Um, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, to her own master, they stand or fall, and stand they will, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Really important word. I want to conclude my message today with um, wise words from a mentor in my life. Whether you give or receive advice, you can probably shut your Bible at this point, tuck your notes in because you're going to 
Go back and search some more. I know you will, and I'm happy you will. Um, Whether you give or receive advice, remember that humans, humans, how many humans in the room right now? (laughs) You with me, all right. Are fallible. That's obvious, I know. Even so, when the desire for clear direction becomes intense, folks, this is not Taco Bell versus Burger King. Which do we choose? Okay, we get that. When the desire for clear direction becomes intense, we seem to expect that if we find the right person or listen to enough advice, a message from God will come through. Unfortunately, we rarely get the kind of certainty we want the most. It's possible for wise people to give bad counsel with the best of motives. Gosh, take that one in. It haunts me a little bit because I've given, I thought good counsel and it might, looking back in hindsight, I might have stunk. Not might, probably did. There are those moments for wise people to give bad counsel with the best motives. He wrote me, I know, I've done it. And it's possible to make a decision based on a broad consensus of wise counselors. How many of us can quote the proverb that says there's clarity and an abundance of what? Counsel. So, if I get a whole room like this helping me with this decision, I'll get clarity. Right? Um. He says, it's possible to make a decision based on broad consensus of wise advisors only to discover that they were mistaken. I've been on that end of the dilemma as well. The fact is, people are fallible. So expecting 100% accuracy isn't, would you write these words down, isn't realistic. Boy, that resets things for me. In the end, we simply have to make the best decision we can with the information we have available. Accepting the possibility, I don't want to finish this sentence, that that we might make a wrong move. How many have ever made a wrong move just so I don't feel so alone? Okay, it's good, it's good. We're together, people, we're together, all right? Rather than becoming paralyzed with indecision seemed like a pretty acceptable place to be if you're stuck. Use the time you have available to determine the best course of action, commit it to the Lord, and then move ahead. If you make a bad move ahead in good faith, the Lord will honor your trust in Him. Remember, you're committing it to the Lord. And as always, he will use the circumstance for your good. And he finished with this. This is so good. Get your pen out again and write it down. It's so good. Regardless, remember, there's no such thing as a decision without a downside. What? Whole new sermon. I don't like that possibility. 
When I take the fork I take, I want it to be the right one with no downside. Am I just ridiculous? No, I know you're all looking at me like, oh, bro, that's me. That is me. That is so me. Which mascara should I use today? <laughs> now I'm tempted to come up with something for the men so the women don't feel left out. But uh, anyway, regardless, remember there's no such thing as a decision without a downside. And sometimes the trade-off is significant no matter what you do. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to have communion, and we're going to respond with the conviction that the Holy Spirit has for us. The worship team's going to reset here. And